ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm Eric Anderson, and today I'm pleased to continue our series with members of the intelligent design community talking about their stories, their backgrounds and experiences, why they're involved with intelligent design, some of the challenges they've faced, and the importance of following the evidence where it leads. In short, why it matters. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Scott Minnick, Senior Fellow at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture and Professor of Microbiology at the University of Idaho. Minnick is perhaps most well-known for his extensive work on the bacterial flagellum. Welcome, Scott. Oh, thank you. It's, it's good to participate. So when I first got interested in intelligent design, probably, gosh, 20 years ago, I saw this wonderful documentary, Unlocking the Mystery of Life, and remember seeing you talk about this amazing molecular system, the bacterial flagellum. How did you get involved in that project? It was really interesting. I, I had done a postdoc at Purdue. It was pretty much applied molecular genetics. We had, or I had cloned the Bacillus thuringiensis delta toxin gene, which is the BT toxin that was in Monsanto put into plants, and took a job in industry, but really didn't like it. I had collaborated with a friend at Purdue on um, detection of Yersinia, and that involved the you know identifying flagellin structures that are pretty unique that we could use antibodies for, and it kind of intrigued me. And as I read about the flagellum, just the basic biology of it, I was fascinated. So when I was in industry, I you know I, I called up Austin Newton at Princeton and said, "Hey, you know I I'd like to come and work in your group." Um, mm. It unfolded from there. So I essentially took leave of absence. It was supposed to be for a year, but I ended up staying three years in, in Princeton working on flagellum biosynthesis. It was a great, great time. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. And then how did you get uh, involved with uh, Unlocking the Mystery? Did they just contact you somehow and ask you to do an interview? Or? When I came to Idaho as a, as a faculty position, there was a, a former chair of physics, Larry Johnston, who had been in the Manhattan Project, you know, came out of Berkeley, he was a student of Louis Alvarez, and he was getting, he was retiring and um, interested in biology, and so we kind of formed a study group, and he kept saying, what's going on with this intelligent design okay. area? And so I started reading that, you know, looking into that, and found that Steve Meyer was on faculty at Whitworth College up in Spokane, so we made contact, and and the documentary came out of that. Okay. Out of that relationship. Yeah, great. Well, I want to circle back to your work in a, in a few minutes, but first of all, just wanted to share how much I've appreciated your work over the years and the careful and meticulous approach you've taken as you've addressed key claims, including those from the long-term evolutionary experiment. So on, on behalf of all of us, really appreciate everything you've done. Oh, thanks. Thanks. So Scott, take us back to the beginning, as it were. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? I was born in Honolulu. Oh, very nice. Before Hawaii. Somebody's got to do it, right? Before Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, before Hawaii was a state. My father was a, was an Air Force pilot, West Pointer, the whole nine yards. And so wow. I grew up in the military. And we moved all over, you know, time in Europe and East Coast, mostly in Virginia, Northern Virginia. Okay, so this is post-World War II. Two years in Honolulu, or your folks are there. and Yeah, I was... Both my brother and I were born in Honolulu. I was born in 52 and stayed six months before he was transferred to 
to the DC area. Okay. All right. And is you, is your brother older or younger? Or? Uh, he's 18 months older. Okay. And just the, just the two of you, right? I have a younger sister. Oh, okay. So she was in microbiology as well, although now she's, I think, kind of retired as a from that. But okay. It's been very active. Yeah. So when you're growing up, would you say your parents were kind of more religious or more secular in their leanings? What was your kind of as you, as you grew up in that sense? Um, well, I think they were, I would class them as agnostic. Um, mm-hmm. They would take us to church, my brother and I, and they would go sometimes, depended on where we where we were. But I had that history. In fact, for a while in high school, I was the only one in my family that went to church. Mm. No one else did. So yeah, okay. I was kind of searching. I was searching. You know, I wasn't a a believer. I didn't understand what that meant. But yeah, we had the history, a tradition of the Episcopal Church. And okay, great. So um, as you're as you're in high school and you're kind of growing up, uh, when did you first realize you're fascinated with science, or did that come at a later time? I mean, I always enjoyed chemistry and biology in high school, mm-hmm. but I had planned to go into the military. This was in the 60s. And my brother, you know, when I was a sophomore, my brother went to Annapolis mm-hmm. and um, I thought I would go to West Point. And it was in the middle of the Vietnam War and my father came home from the Pentagon, you know, when Johnson stopped the bombing in North Vietnam and said, find something else to do. I don't want you going to West Point. And, and that just threw me for a loop. So I, I went 180 degrees. I was more interested in history and social science and just the whole, you know, culture of the 60s and got caught up in that. Okay. <laughs> didn't, didn't make it out here to Berkeley, did you? <laughs> I, I actually did. I mean, that was kind of a, a, a changing point for me. I, and when I was a freshman at Washington State University, there were a group of us that hitchhiked down to San Francisco for an anti-war march. Sure. And, uh, Sounds like you've got some commiserating you could do with Jonathan Wells there and uh, <laughs> some of his experiences at Berkeley, San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Right. So, you're, so you're in um, – all right. So you decide not, not going to West Point. You're, you're going to do something else. So what did you study when you I, – um, I was kind of a free agent. Mm-hmm. I was – you know, I actually – would sign up for I signed up for a 400 level sociology class and black revolution area studies and mm-hmm. you know really enjoyed that but at the same time I was required to take chemistry and I took microbiology my first semester because my roommate was taking it and I figured I'd just get the notes from him and <laughs> and that was the embarrassment the only course I didn't do well in, in my entire career <laughs> is intro to microbiology because I never went yeah. But I think, you know, to, you know the, it was interesting when I got, you know, a, I had a 69% in this class. Mm. I had a D. I had straight A's, everything else. I went to the professor and knocked on his door. He was sitting at his desk, you know, reading something. And, and he looked over his glasses and he's, he said, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I'm not a science major. I got a 69% in your class. You know, it's kind of dinged my GPA. What can I do? And he just said, get the hell out of my office. <laughs> oh, wow. And that, that made me so mad that I thought, okay, I'll retake this class and I'll do well. I'll, I'll go to it. Uh-huh. But I was by the time I retook it, I had taken the second semester of chemistry. Mm. And there was a biochemist by the name of Ralph Yant at WSU that gave a section on molecular biology 
focused on the lac operon of E. coli and lambdaphage. And, oh, wow. You know, it's a short introduction to molecular biology, and, and it blew me away. Mm. I thought, man, I want to do that, you know. And so I started looking around, well, how do you work on this stuff? And at the time, E. coli was a paradigm. Yeah. Um, and so when I went back into microbiology, I went in, you know, off the deep end and never looked back. I was just intrigued by the whole process of organisms, even the simplest organisms, and understanding their physiology and their genetics. Uh, and here I am 50, over 50 years later and still intrigued. What, what was it that intrigued you? I mean, was it the realization that there's controls or there's a systematic That's it, exactly. thing? Or? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I enjoyed biology and natural history, but, you know, this was decision-making on the part, you know, how mm -hmm. does a virus decide whether to incorporate into the chromosome of its host or just replicate and get out and all the control levels and feedbacks that were, that were going on. This was really a biology that you could start parsing apart, you know, make a mutant, see what the effect was. And it really brought it out of the a mindset that I had that biology was just more descriptive. Mm -hmm. This was mechanistic. Yeah, you can really, I think that was the drawing point. Yeah, sink sink your teeth in and find out what's actually going on. Yeah. So so um, you're still an undergraduate at this point, or? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and yeah. then you graduated with what was your degree in ultimately? It was in back in the day. It was in bacteriology and public health. Bacter. Okay. Okay. So all right, and then did you go to work or did you go to? Um, nope. <clears throat> I went on to graduate school, did a master's in microbiology. And then went to Iowa State, did a PhD mm -hmm. in microbiology, and just postdoc, little stint in industry, and then another postdoc, and then academia. Okay, where where did you do your postdoc work at? In both of those times, well, the first one I did at Purdue, mm -hmm. and um, that was a great experience. It was a a shift from more applied microbiology than I had been doing to molecular genetics. I was working in Art Aronson's lab. I think he was one of the few postdocs that. Francis Crick. Had. Okay, but he just gave us gave us free reign and and uh, great mentor. I really I really enjoyed it. And you're studying uh, bacteriology at that. That was we were cloning um, the Bt toxin gene. That's the one that has been put in plants to control Leptodopteran larvae from feeding on the roots. Oh, this is back so it was the first application with with uh, this one. right. Yeah, it was really one of the first applications of recombinant DNA technology to you know, an applied area in agriculture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. And this is also the time frame when you started hearing about intelligent design and it's a little bit before okay. that, you know, I was, I was reading some of the literature. I wasn't too intrigued by the, you know, creation Institute, mm -hmm. or, although I followed it, but I thought, you know, as a, as a young Christian that really from the template of Romans, nature should speak for itself. We don't have to bring in the religious component. And I just wanted to hear the, the science aspect of it. Yeah. And that's what was intriguing about intelligent design, which does not owe allegiance to any scripture or position of faith. It's just asking the question, can the natural processes of physics and chemistry produce life? You know, the right. question of origins and the diversity that we've seen. As a result. Right, right. Okay. And then where was your second postdoc at? That was at Princeton. Okay. 
So that's when I switched to flagellum biosynthesis and again, kind of molecular genetics, microbial molecular genetics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're at Princeton, then you come out to University of Idaho. Is that where you came next? I I did a a year at Tulane okay. as a faculty member. I had grown up a lot in the South, but my wife hadn't, and, and she just didn't care for for uh, New Orleans. It was a pretty rough city back then, and so I think I owed it to her. You know, if she wasn't happy, then she'd followed me right <laughs> all over. She wanted, she wanted to get back to the Northwest. So right, okay. It was a back position to the open. I snow played. and the sleet and the enjoyable weather right instead of new orleans right <laughs> right okay awesome so so we we kind of skipped that part how, where did you meet your wife at and how did you guys we actually met in high school in northern virginia oh, wow. okay um, so i think we were we were 14 um she grew up in the military too and oh. so that's and were you were you kind of uh, interested at that point or did you come back together later yeah 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 yeah, we were interested. I would save up money, and her father was transferred out to Colorado at Fort Carson, and I'd save up money and go out and, you know, skiing. And so, and then she was transferred to Germany, and my father was transferred to Germany again. So we just kind of danced around the continents. Yeah. Okay. So you actually saw her in Germany when you were there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, it sounds like it was meant to be somebody <laughs> trying to bring you together over and over. Right. So do you guys have any children or? We do. We have four. We got married in 73 or our first child was born in 77. Mm -hmm. And so they're scattered all over one in Dallas, one in a daughter in CDC in Atlanta. I have a son in Seattle and our youngest daughter's in Mexico City. Yeah, okay. So you move out to Moscow, you get acquainted with Steve, uh, Steve Meyer. And uh, did, did you guys actually meet or just talk over the phone? Or We met. I actually in, invited him down to give a seminar. Oh, okay. Um, and, you know, that was a big mistake. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he really ruffled a few feathers and... <laughs> and uh, I think there are still people on campus that won't look at me when, you know, opening that door on our campus. Yeah. Well, you know, Steve's such an abrasive guy, right? So, of course, hard to find a nicer person. But yeah, so so you got some flag from your colleagues there at campus for even even having him come and speak, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, But, but you decided, but, when did, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, in, in my department in microbiology, molecular biology, and biochemistry, there were some people that were upset about it, kind of intrigued. But biological sciences, which is more evolution-oriented, were, mm -hmm. they were they were pretty upset. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, when did you have, if I can ask it this way, maybe sort of a defining moment when you said, you know what, I need to spend some time on this. I need to be involved with intelligent design. I'm, I'm willing to speak out so to speak, put my head above the parapet. And yeah, that's a good question. You know, I had our oldest daughter was taking a 100 level kind of seminar biology course uh, here at the University of Idaho. And it was really organized where faculty in biological sciences would come down on, you know, I think it was a Friday afternoon at lunch and just talk an hour about their research, which was great. I mean, the students got an idea of what, you know, who their faculty were. Mm -hmm. um, or what they were working on. But one faculty, young faculty, really used his 
lectern kind of as a pulpit. It was pretty pretty disparaging and and pushing his worldview, you know, on the students. And you know, my daughter told me about this, and you know, I was pretty surprised. So I actually went and talked to this faculty member I knew him, and I and I said, you know, I think you're kind of out of bounds, mm -hmm. and you know, using nature as a template in terms of how we should behave. And I think that's kind of dangerous territory, but we had a good discussion. But it was at that point where I thought, you know, my daughter was pretty vulnerable. Her friends, some of her friends in the class were and were being challenged, which was really good. But, you know, I thought I felt that I needed to counter that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good to be challenged as long as you have an opportunity to hear both sides and to speak up and not, you know, fear that your grade is at risk or anything like that. Right. 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 All right. So then you decide to get involved. Um, at the time, did you have any particular thoughts about evolution or the capacity of, say, mutation selection? Or when did you first start to have doubts about that? Oh, I think from the beginning, you know, that that really wasn't a problem for me. And I've, I remember even at Princeton, a lot of friends I had were postdocs in, in plasma physics out at the Forrestal Center. And they were intrigued about evolution and what I thought as a Christian um, mm -hmm. in terms of its limitations. And I use the flagellum as an example. You know, this is back in probably 80, 86. Look at the elegance of this machine and all the control points. And I questioned whether we could get to this by a stepwise mutation selection pathway, because we know that if we knock out any gene, you know, you lose the system. So what do you have to select? Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a precursor. I think, of course, Mike Behe was much more elegant in his argument when he formalized it in terms of irreducible complexity. But that just gelled when his book came out. Yeah. So I was going to ask about that. So did you have any conversations with Mike before he published his book or did you guys kind of come to this independently? I think independently. I, again, I could, I could, I don't think I was sophisticated or had the time to spend in terms of formulating my arguments, but I was certainly tracking when his book came out that, yeah, 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 this is, this is what I, what I think as well. And I actually, when his book came out, I actually, emailed him because we were stumbling upon the type three secretion system in, yeah, and your right. in its relationship with the flagellum. And I, I thought, you know, we may have a precursor. I don't know if that was the first uh, indication that he had that there was a, you know, a competitor for development of the flagellum, but. Right. Okay. That's when you get that, first got in contact was. Right. Right. In the early nineties. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, um, I mean, I think most of our listeners know, but just tell us briefly, how did that shake out with the, the, the claims of the type three secretary system as a precursor to the flagellum? Oh, man, that was, you know, there was a whole Dover trial. The flagellum was kind of on trial. And, and, you know, I think Judge Jones kind of bought Ken Miller's argument that the type three secretion system was a precursor, although I was saying it can't be, you mm -hmm. know. The mutational density of these components, the type three, are shallower than the flagellum. You know, if anything, it's a degradation product of the flagellum that's been co-opted, but not the other way around. But you know, that was satisfactory to even some of my colleagues here at the university who were teaching in their biology classes that the type three secretion system was a precursor of the of the flagellum, mm -hmm. which 
you know, we know it's wrong. And, and uh, there was a review article by Sinichi Ozawa. I mean, he published in 2009. So this was four years after the trial. And I have actually, I have a copy of it. Let me read this excerpt from the introduction where, you know, and he's a leader in biophysics of the flagellum works with a good friend of mine, Kelly Hughes, and, and they're looking at irreducible complexity. So they're challenging Mike's assertion, but he says in the introduction that suggests that the assembly mechanism for the flagellar structure is universal and that the flagellar machine is essentially the same in all species. Then he goes on to say, since the flagellum is so well designed, his word, and beautifully constructed by an ordered assembly pathway, even I, who am not a creationist, get an awe-inspiring feeling from its divine beauty. Mm. However, if the flagellum has evolved from a primitive form, where are the remnants of its ancestors? Why don't we see any intermediate or simpler forms of flagella than what they are today? How is it possible that the flagella has evolved without leaving traces in history? I mean, that's, that's the question right there. And it wasn't solved in 2005 at the trial. It wasn't solved in 2009, according to Sinichi, and, and we still don't know. Yeah, but, but pretty well, you, you, you think pretty definitively that, if anything, the flagellum is more ancient than the type 3? Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, the type 3 secretion systems you find in a narrow group of gram-negative bacteria, and the flagella is across all the bacterial phylum. Yeah. So it's well-conserved. So the, the question that Mike raised in his book in 96 and the question that you were talking about your with your colleagues 10 years earlier in 86 Still very much on the table. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So when you got involved with intelligent design and started to spend some time and some energy and effort on this, were your family supportive? Were they kind of skeptical or where were they at in both your family that you grew up with as well as your, your wife and kids? Um, it was mixed. Mm-hmm. You know, I think my mother, my mother and sister thought I was taking too much risk. Mm. My wife was worried to a degree because she was hearing what it happened to other faculty members across the nation. Right. But I don't know. I think, I think it's, it seemed, um, it just seemed right. You know, I, I can tell you one incident. Sure. And this kind of solidified it for me. So in the, in the mid nineties, the biology department here at Idaho invited Robert Pinnock out to give a talk. He had just published a new book titled the tower of Babel, mm. the new creationists and, so it was kind of an attack against intelligent design. And, you know, he gave a seminar and he had my picture up in his PowerPoint. <laughs> essentially alerting faculty that, you know, there's a problem at the University of Idaho. And he finished his seminar and I raised my hand to ask a question. And boy, he just, you know, he went right on the offensive and said, oh, you're here. I didn't think you would come. Why don't you tell us? how you take the position you do that's counter to the very foundation of your discipline. I mean, here's a, you know, 300 people in the audience. And I said, well, that's a good question. I'm, I'm sure other people are wondering too, but what I find interesting is you ended your seminar with the famous quote by Dubchansky, nothing in biology makes sense outside the light of evolution. Okay. I happen to be in the most productive department in terms of grant awards and publications were in the heart of, you know, modern biology, molecular biology, biochemistry, 
And we don't even have a course of evolution as a requirement, nor as an elective in our curriculum. So when you say nothing in biology makes sense outside of evolution, then, you know, I would differ. We do great biology and, and it's not part of our course content. I mean, the students will ask about it and it's brought up in sure. courses, but it's not formally taught. And in the department that invited you, you know, the, the formal evolution course is 400 level. So there's a disconnect there. And I have canvassed all the faculty in my department and none of us ever took a course in evolution during our training. And we come out of the best universities, Wisconsin, Berkeley, Harvard, MIT. And I'm the only person with one other in the department that's ever read Darwin. So I beg to differ with you on your point. Mm. You know, but it was true. I had asked to take a course in evolution when I was a graduate student. And my mentor said, you don't have time for that. You got you to do biology. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's great. So um, that brings me to, you know, what you were talking about a little bit earlier, Scott, which is at some point you had invited Steve down to give this this talk and got some askance looks from your colleagues thereafter. So what kind of, if you don't mind sharing, in addition to this experience with Panic, what kind of experiences have you had where you've been challenged or maybe even attacked personally or in your professional career due to your support of intelligent design? Oh, it's, it's been off and on. I think when I participated in the Dover trial, mm. that really rankled my colleagues. And, and I was actually censored by the university president, White, at the time, where he went public and said that intelligent design will not be taught in the physical biological sciences. If it is addressed, it'll only be in, in the sociology and, psych, and the philosophy courses. And Afterwards, he made that he made this assertion. I apparently, faculty on campus went to the president and complained. Yeah. you know that I was participating in this trial, and you know I I just said I'm not teaching this in my course. You know, coming back to that point, I know I know the difference between a pulpit and a lectern, and I'm not crossing that balance. Mm -hmm. But my colleagues are. You know, they're teaching against this viewpoint, and there's an imbalance there. Mm -hmm. But that was tough. And they even went to, you know, I had an affiliate position at the University of Washington since I teach first year medical students. And, and they went to the dean in College of Medicine and complained. And, you know, I had to assure them that I wasn't teaching intelligent design in my infectious disease course. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. And there have been other instances too, but, it, you know, it comes with the territory. So Yeah. Well, why have you kept at it? I mean, why, why does it matter to you to continue voicing your your thoughts and your your um, understanding, even in the face of some of these kinds of challenges? Because I think this is the big question. Evolution is important. Don't get me wrong. Mutation selection happens, and, and organisms can adapt. It's just a question of what is the limit, and I think it's I think it is limited. I think you can you fluctuate around a mean, but you're not generative. Mm -hmm. You know, you're it's a preservative mechanism. It's not generative. And so then the question comes, how did this come about? I mean, if you look at DNA, this is the most sophisticated digital information storage readout system that we know mm -hmm. of. And it's got analog information built into it as well. And it's not an arbitrary code. You know, it's a, it's a 
bias code that ensures that if you have a point mutation, a single change in the code, that you're going to get either the same amino acid or one that's in the same chemical family. How did this happen? It's, and we know from experience that where you have codes, language, musical scales, mathematical symbols, there's, there's mind behind it. And this is a, this is a mother of all codes. You know, it is just mind blowing and it's, it's optimized to minimize mutations of the, the effect of mutations. And that's got to s- cause you to stop and wonder, right? It's such a elegant system. Yeah. And, and there's a great irony, I think, in there, Scott, because not only the code, but all of the error correction mechanisms and the proofreading and the quality control that goes on is geared toward minimizing in many, many cases, right? Minimizing the effects of this mutational process. But on the other hand, you know, evolutionists are kind of speaking out of the other side of their mouth and say, but all of these remarkable systems that help prevent, (laughs) you know, mutations came about because of mutation. I mean, it's just a very ironic sort of state of affairs. Right, right. That was the first half of my conversation with Dr. Scott Minnick about his journey to intelligent design and why it matters to him to continue sharing the evidence for design in the world. Join us next time as we continue our conversation. Dr. Minnick will share how he became involved in reviewing the results of the famous long-term evolutionary experiment and how he and his colleagues conclusively demonstrated that the implications of this important experiment were not as the supporters of Darwinian evolution had claimed. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.